This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. There's a mood of social reform about. The same-sex marriage referendum was passed last year and now momentum is gathering around a campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. But despite over 20 years of campaigning, fathers, married and unmarried, are making very little progress. A recent High Court decision by Richard Humphreys has given some cause for hope, but the fact remains that in the public debate, the campaign for fathers' rights is a failure. What will it take for fathers to get the political attention they need to get justice? In studio this morning, Fergus Finlay is Chief Executive with Bernardo's and Limo Gogon is founder of Parental Equality. Later, we'll be hearing from John Waters and Dr. Roisin O'Shea. She's the partner in ARC Mediation and Researcher at Waterford IT, who's an expert on what's going on in the family courts. You can send us your texts, 53106 for 30 cent and at Talking Point NT for tweets. And on the line now is Matt O'Connor. He's the campaigner from Fathers for Justice who dressed up as a priest and got up on stage at the Rose of Tralee to draw attention to the issue. Uh, Matt, whenever I mention fathers' rights to people, the initial reaction is to sneer and dismiss campaigners as being mad. Um, when fathers, <laughs> when fathers for justice engages in publicity stunts like yours, are you not playing into that image? Well, you know, uh, Sarah, uh, for many years, I'll be, I started um, fathers for justice fifteen years ago. And, you know, my way of coping um, with the living bereavement of not seeing my two boys originally um, was to try and sugarcoat the pill. And it was a very painful, very bitter, difficult pill to swallow, to be separated uh, from your flesh and blood and people you love. And so my campaign, first, is a, it's a love story because it's about my love, my love for my children, my love for my family. But unfortunately, you've got to get attention. And, and so I try and run a humorous campaign, but with a very, very serious message. My job, the focus of Fathers for Justice, is to sound the alarm, to start the debate, to get people talking about the issues. Uh, and so we do it in a colourful way. We do it in an interesting way. Um, and we're mocked. But, you know, hey, the other suffragettes are mocked. Uh, other campaigners we mocked. Um, but there's nothing more absurd than a country like Ireland, you know, that denies half its population, the men of Ireland, the men of 1960s, and, you know, the founders who started this country denied them the basic human right to be a father. That's the most absurd, insane thing. And why do you think that it has come to this, that you're required to do um, things like that in order to get attention? Well, I mean, Sarah, you'll know what the media is like. Um, there are, uh, is a fairly uh, shady cabal of uh, snake oil salesmen, gatekeeping media minders who, who are very liberal uh, about certain issues, but very li- liberal about other issues. The, the, the father's issue has never been uh, a sexy media topic. It never gets uh, any coverage unless somebody like me or one of our brave, courageous uh, fathers is, is hanging off a bridge somewhere or dangling off a public building. Um, and, you know, that's the, that's the tragedy here is that this is an issue which is hiding in plain sight. It is the elephant in the room of Irish politics. And we have to start that debate. And using the platform, as I did, of the Rosa Tralee is to really try and kickstart that issue and warn people 
that every single family in Ireland is at risk from the cancer or family breakdown and fatherlessness. And that's our message. Now, you know, I've had experience in politics and public relations myself, and often what people will try and do is build consensus around a topic discreetly and in the background before going public with something. Have What success, if any, have you had or have you tried to build consensus in the political class behind the scenes? Well, I can tell you, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been doing this for 15 years. Um, I have met politicians of every particular shade and hue. Um, in the UK, um, we've had some success. We, uh, with the backing of people like George Galloway uh, and MPs from right across the political spectrum, we won the support of 104 MPs in the last parliament with an um, early demotion back in shared parenting, which is what we campaigned for. Um, in Ireland, I know people like poor old John Waters has been the whipping boy <laughs> for this issue. Um, and he's been trying to raise it. I know many, many uh, good people in Ireland have been trying to raise this issue politically. But it's a, it's a non-starter. I mean, certainly, you know, relating my UK experiences to Ireland, I mean, Ian Duncan Smith said to me this was a political taboo, that politicians don't want to go near this issue, with the largest constituency of floating voters are mothers and single mothers. Um, what we need to do, and what we have to do, Sarah, at some point, is build a political consensus that says that shared parenting is responsible parenting. And I have to say, that's what's happening in many states uh, in the United States, in Maine, in Massachusetts, in Texas and Florida. There is a move to legislate for shared parenting. It is a common sense social policy. It is a common sense economic policy. With the cost of family breakdown and the cost of fatherlessness is horrendous, horrendous to our communities, to our families and to our country. The politicians, I believe in the long term, the long term, because this is going to take a long time, will eventually embrace shared parenting. And that's what I hope for our children, for our children's sake. And finally, Matt, in the Irish context, if there was one thing that you'd like politicians to do now for fathers, what would it be? Fathers in Ireland should be treated the same as mothers. We need automatic guardianship rights. Um, We need to see a presumption of shared parenting. We need to see open justice. We need to see the way your yeah, courts are for criminals. Courts are not for families. Yeah, um, we need to change entirely our whole ethos, methodology of how we approach family law. But for God's sake, fathers and children need each other. You know, I always say to people, you know, having a father is a fundamental human right. How can we deny in Ireland when everybody else is equal rights? How can we deny Ireland's fathers that same right? Okay, well, Matt, if it's any consolation, we are having the show today because your um, efforts at Rose of Tralee did prompt us into thinking, well, hang on a second, why our father's been driven to these desperate measures? So um, so one that's one for you anyway. We can tell you that this morning. So <laughs> thank thanks a million for talking to us. So and well, I hope you listen you. to the rest of the show where we'll be focusing on this. Um, we're going next to Roisin O'Shea from Arc Mediation. And Roisin has done an awful lot of research into what's going on in the family courts. Um, Roisin, look, I'd appreciate 
appreciated if you might clear up one thing for us, um, and it's to do with unmarried fathers and specifically what are their constitutional rights. And there seem to be two important cases. One was Nicolau versus Ambordu-Tala. He was a Cypriot man who didn't want his child adopted. And another one was called the Finley Judgment. Is he any relation to you, Fergus? No, the Supreme Court judge from 1990 about um, something similar. Could you just briefly explain to us what those cases were and then what the implications constitutionally and legislatively are for unmarried fathers? Good morning, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just dumped a lot in your plate there. Sorry, Rosie. Very early on a Saturday morning for that. But hey, just go for it. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, unmarried fathers at the moment have no explicit rights in our constitution. So zero. So that answers the first part of your question. Yeah. So, so parental rights for fathers are actually dependent on the goodwill of the mother at the moment, unmarried or married, and then a sympathetic judge. So that's, that's how fathers' rights are, are evidenced in our courts. Um, so we have the, the, the well, Finley case was 1990. So in that case, uh, Finley, J, he determined that, that a, blood, a blood link between an infant and their father, unmarried or not, should be considered as, as a link in terms of applying for guardianship. So what that case actually did, it just gave the natural father the right to apply for guardianship, but it didn't give him any legal position in law and it didn't equate his rights with a married father. So that's what Finley case did. Then we have 1996 and the, the Nicolau case, this is the father of a non-marital child and he lived with his partner um, just up until the child was born. They, the mother then, they, they split up. She just went back to Dublin. She put the child up for adoption without his consent. So he challenged. Um, now, the Supreme Court decided in this case that an unmarried father is not part of the family as defined in our constitution under Article 41 and he was not a parent within the meaning of Article 42. So the result was from that case that the father had zero parental rights. Mm-hmm. Now, they, that, we already knew that, but when the Supreme Court says it, says it really, really clearly and interprets the Constitution, that's how we work here. We have a Constitution and then the courts interpret the Constitution. So 30 years later, we had the Keegan case where Keegan took Ireland to the European Court of Human Rights on a similar issue. Again, it was about adoption of his child without his consent. And the European Court said, now, European Convention laws are, are supreme laws and they, and they arch over Ireland. So Irish law comes down lower than those. So the, the European Court of Rights said that um, under Article 8 of the Convention, that this was a breach of the, uh, an interference with the father's right to natural family rights. And those family rights were not necessarily marital family rights. So we've got a conflict between our constitution, which says it gives this power to the, the married family, and European conventions that we've signed up to that say the, the, the family under the Article 8 is not necessarily a married family. So that's where we are. I suppose, look, the view that I would take, you know, and this isn't actually for me about father's rights or mother's rights. This is a world of competing rights. And where, where I personally begin is I begin with the fundamental rights of children. So, so my view is that children have the right to spend time with both parents. And I'm an advocate of those rights. And no child should be separated from either parent unless there are really clear and significant welfare issues to, to, to say that that should be the case. And those can happen, definitely. But the starting presumption should be married, un, unmarried, male or female, let's, let's have parity of treatment and equality. Equality is the issue here. And that we should have equal treatment of fathers and mothers in relation to being parents. But let's put the rights of the child ahead of those two rights and say that the child has the right to, to, to time with both parents. 
that's that's where we should start. And is that what Richard Humphreys, in his judgment on the 29th of July, was getting towards? It got a lot of attention for what he said about the rights of the unborn. But one of those, you know, one of those rights related to family relationships. Will you just explain that judgment to us and what improvement it has given to fathers? Okay, I I personally don't feel this judgment has improved the the, the right. rights of fathers. I mean, because because first of all, it's a high court case, and this is going to go to the Supreme Court. So really, that it's our ultimate court that is going to. That's where the weight is. Now, I'm not saying there's. I'm not saying that there isn't weight for this judge and his decisions in the high court, but essentially, high court. This will go to the Supreme Court, and my view of this is that the Supreme Court is not going to follow on from from what, from what Justice Humphrey has done here. But essentially, this really came down to a discussion about did an, did the unborn have future rights, not rights as an unborn, but rights when when the child was born. And what it did do was it did loosely tie up those rights with the father and the unmarried father, but it didn't really give any power. I, I think I think fundamentally, what we need is a referendum. You know, because our constitution at the moment gives explicit rights to mothers, whether they're married or unmarried, and no explicit rights to fathers, married or unmarried. And that's the fundamental problem. So no court case is going to, to clear that up. Um, it's actually a referendum that says parents, married, unmarried, are automatically parents. And then we have to, you know, what is what are those guardianship rights? What, mm-hmm. what rights are we going to give? And, and you know, it, like if we look at, sorry, I'm going to go on a bit here. But it's like, okay, go on. If we look at the Children and Family Relationships Act, I was so excited about that act coming in because I really thought here was an opportunity to address these these equality issues for children, the equal right to, to time with their parents. Um, and and we really, it really rode back on what it could have done. I have to say, like Jeffrey Shannon, the first draft was excellent and there was, there was some really powerful stuff in there, particularly around how these rights play out in a courtroom. The original... During my my court research, and, and I spent four years in the courts watching cases, and a lot of those were appeals from the district court, which were access appeals. So what I saw really, really clearly was that there was a unilateral breaching of court orders as a matter of course. It was very common. It wasn't sort of rare. And this was because it's the moral hazard. There was no sanction for and look, when people are in, in conflict, they behave badly. So I'm not I'm not picking on uh, parents who are primary carers. I'm saying it's the human condition. And if if it is known that there's no clear sanction, then why would you why would you not take the risk of breaching the court orders if you really really could not tolerate having anything to do with the father of your child and the the relationship is so hostile or so acrimonious? So what's happening? These these appeals were coming up to the, the circuit court. And the judges were saying, and I and I interviewed the judges, and I put this in my PhD. The judges were saying to me, "Well, what can we do, Roshan, in this situation, other than commit the mother, because that's what the law says?" And and I kept coming back with, "Well, actually, no. You do have the power to change custody as a sanction if you wished." Mm. Well, it's it, it's quite. I, I think one judge did it, um, and Jeffrey Shannon says the same thing. We both presented at a conference, and Jeffrey, who's now a judge, he said the same thing that the, there was the power for judges to change custody as a, as a as a means of sanctioning against um, frequent breaches by uh, by a mother of um, existing court orders, so I was hoping the Child and Family Relationship Act would really get get to grips with that, and the, and the, the initial draft did. But now it's quite weak, and it, it, yes, there are enforcement possibilities in there, but they're they're very. Like, well, what what John Waters said to me was that there's still a huge amount resting on the consent of the mother, that the fathers, unmarried fathers can apply for guardianship or custody rights, but they have to have been living with the mother for a year. Yeah. But that 
presumes that she's allowed them to live with her for a year. So it still all rests on the consent of the mother. It's, it's, it's very arbitrary. I mean, think about it. Let's think about it. You're 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 young and you're in love and you're and you're in you know like we're all we all behave really well when we're in that space, and you get pregnant and things are going fine and then you you know things are getting a little bit edgy but you're you, you know you're coming up to the the term of your pregnancy and you're 11 months and 15 days he's living with you and you go well you know what if i leave if he lives here 12 months and we're not getting on and they start fighting well out you get mm. and and you can't be a guardian and you know is that the right approach to the rights of a child as against rights of parents? I don't think so. And I just we have been talking about unmarried fathers but i know married fathers and it's just extraordinary what they're going through. They're absolutely broken mentally and financially and the mother's on legal aid and no help in the family courts. Now, is that anecdotal or from your experience in the family courts, is it fair to say that the family courts are not helping the father so as, a, as a matter of, of okay. systematically? I, I, I manage slightly differently. First of all, my research was empirical. So yes, the facts are that in 97% of cases, the, the mother was the primary care of a child. And in all cases that I saw, the, the father was a, a, an, it got very limited time with the child. So there was a presumption that the mother is the better parent and that, that they should be the primary parent. And where parents were fighting, the courts reflected that. The, the key thing here is Irish court. It's not Irish courts doing something extraordinary. What Irish courts are doing is reflecting societal norms. And, and we're we're quite interesting at the moment. We're, I'm on a, I'm just well, hopefully I'm just about to be elected onto a, on an international shared parenting conference or committee, which is based in Berlin. And the the we're standing in the same place as Switzerland at the moment. There was thirty something countries at the last conference I went to, and we we in Switzerland have exactly the same uh, outcomes in our courts in relation to fathers. Every second weekend, one night during the week, mother primary care. Children under 12 presumption that they should be with the mother. That's Switzerland. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I'm looking up with the searches there to figure out what's going on. Mm. Where, did, where, did it, where was the game changer? What could we do as a society to make it a game changing situation? Sweden had a, a significant game changer in the mid 90s. Up until then, Sweden was doing legislative changes to try and bring about this equality, parity of treatment for parents. And it wasn't working. Sweden had the same. Uh, the non-resident parent had 2% of the time of a child in any given week pre-1995. Uh, uh, I'm talking about Sweden now. And my research shows that the in the in the Irish courts that the non-resident parent on average has 2% of the time time of a child in any given week. So we matched the, the stats from Sweden pre-1995. The significant game changer, which I think we really should look at as, as a state, is that Sweden brought in um, subsidised childcare. So the state brought in subsidised childcare and accessible childcare. So it was close to where people worked. And suddenly it went from 2% to 38%. Why? Because women who wanted to could get back to work. And right. it's, not, it's not about pressurising women into working. That's not, that's not the answer either. But the answer is about the, the ability to go back to work. Because what happens in most situations where there's two kids or three kids, who's going to stay at home and mind the kids, even in an intact family? That discussion has to happen. Unfortunately, most of the time that discussion is it's automatically the mothers. Um, that's our society. That's who we are at the moment. And so when the marriage breaks down, what happens? The children, in almost all cases, 97% of my research, 100% of our current pilot research, end up with the mother. Now, is that the mother's fault? No. That's the, that's the system 
that, that allows that to be a, a norm that continues and continues because of childcare costs. And I know it sounds a bit, you know, it sounds like we're off to one side, but we're not. Yeah. But Sweden shows us that that was a very, very fundamental change that went from the 2% to 38%. And they're doing something really extraordinary right now as well. They're doing a thing called nesting, which is where instead of the children moving between the parents, like for, for um, access orders, uh, the the parents nest in the family home. So one parent moves out and the other parent moves in. You know, that's what Jeremy and Greer always said it should be. The kids should be in the one house. It's the parents yeah. should move every second weekend or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm really, like, this, this research is going to be released on that in April in Boston. I'm going along to conference. Hopefully I'm presenting at the conference too. But, but I'm going to hear Sweden's research on that to see how does that work. I mean, I'm not... I think it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great for the kids because that's child-centred activity. Do you know what I mean? That's really focusing on kids. I don't know if the adults are wild about it, but so I suppose. I suppose here's the thing. I mean, I often end up on programs like this, and and um, then I get I get tweets and all kinds of things saying, "Oh my God, there's that fathers' rights activist talking about fathers' rights." That's not where I'm coming from. This is about children's rights. This is about children's rights to time with both parents. This is not anti-women, anti-men. It's just that we as a society haven't got to grips with what is happening. And then and then when, when families in trouble end up in a courtroom, which is the wrong place for families in trouble, what is the judge supposed to do other than follow those norms? Mm. Okay, Roisin, I will leave it there with you for now, okay? <laughs> and you can thank you for talking to me. <laughs> I will thank you for coming on the line and we're getting a lot of texts in already. Kate says, I've yet to meet an unmarried father who takes the same responsibility as an unmarried mother. Another texter says, I totally respect the rights of fathers to guardianship, but what of the fathers who refuse to be fathers? They still exist and shouldn't be given rights. From That's from a single mother in Bray who would dearly have loved my son to have had a father. A midwife has texted, I've observed the great excitement of fathers at the birth of their babies and could never understand why mothers had the choice of omitting the father's name from the birth certificate and thus starting the first stage of phasing out the involvement of fathers in children's lives. I would give fathers equal rights. Good luck to fathers for justice. You know, that might have come from a time when fathers didn't want to be named on birth certificates. Um, It might be early in the morning for you to be discussing this subject, but you must realise that every hour for the past 10 years, I could not be a father to my now 17-year-old son through no fault of my own. And finally, my ex-partner has a substance abuse problem. He's collected the kids from school under the influence. They are afraid of him, but I'm legally forced to spend to send them to spend time with him. And actually, and one more says, what happens if the dad leaves and does not want contact? Each situation is different. And that is true. Every situation is so different. Um, so look, in this month's Village magazine, which often features really interesting long reads, John Waters has a major piece on the judgment made by Richard Humphreys in this IRM case, the application by a Nigerian man against his deportation because his unborn baby, due to an Irish citizen, had rights to the company of his father. Now, John came into studio with me last week and we had a really long conversation about it. The full interview will be put on our website, newstalk.com. We go through the implications for the abortion debate and for fathers' rights. But after we talked about the judgment, we went on to chat about the public debate. Why do you think, even today, that that case for fathers' rights is still not making headway. I mean, this well, judge, this judgment, which is entirely unexpected, is the first glimmer yeah. of hope yes. that the case you've been making Because has we have had. a sick society. We have a sick media who are only interested in trendy issues. You know, 
I mean, I'm saying But to why you, aren't fathers' rights listen, trendy? Listen, well, I'll tell you. I mean, when young men come to me now, grief-stricken and having lost their children and uh, looking to go to court and they run out of options and they have no money and so on and so forth, I say to them, have you ever thought of finding a young man for yourself and settling down? Because then you walk into court and you have maximum rights. Maximum rights. Now you have none. That's the kind of sick society we have now. And I really f- object to politicians parading themselves as progressives when they are, in fact, like Francis Fitzgerald, like Michal Martin, like Enda Kenny, all these people, deeply, deeply, deeply reactionary people, deeply, deeply indifferent to the rights of people, to the real human rights. They're interested in trendy issues, fashionable rights, which are dictated by multinational corporations and the like. But they are not interested in real people and the suffering that they're experiencing as a result of the discrimination they, they meet day and daily in our tyrannical family courts. Last week, in, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw... Uh, Matt O'Connor from Fathers for Justice uh, breaking into the, uh, uh, the stream of, of, of uh, banalities coming from the stage of the Rose of Chile, uh, and I cheer him to the echo. Um, but what an, what, a, what an extraordinary situation that we have gay marriage now and fathers are still having to pull stunts in order to be given the regard that nature intended them to have in the first place. What sort of society do we have now? Um, is it to do with you know, a more taking a more slick, sophisticated attitude that, say, the LGBT um, lobby had the Chuck Feeney money, you know, and there's money now oh, yeah. flowing into the repeal the eighth campaign. I wonder if you were a PR advisor, what advice could you give to fathers' rights campaigners? Cut to your say, balls off. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Is that it? That's about it. It is a deep prejudice. We have talked for years about prejudice. This is the deepest prejudice of all, that fathers are not appropriate parents for children. You know, what's actually happened in our family law system is, in fact, I find it time and again, I talk to men about this, that the contest that has been set up between fathers and mothers is actually a contest to be the best mother. It is not a contest. Nobody knows what a father does anymore. Nobody remembers what their own father did, particularly judges and politicians. They haven't a clue what they're talking about. You know, they want to do a bit of reading, a bit of going out and talking to people and find out what kind of country this is now. Um, you know, I remember uh, reading a piece long ago by, by uh, Robert Bly, uh, the American poet, and he talked about, it made me cry when I read it, because he, he said, you know, what, that we've lost the great father. We've lost as a result of the Industrial Revolution because the father was driven out of the home to work in the coal mines and in the factories. And he said that we have lost this thing. The first time in six million years of human evolution that we've lost this. He said that in the past, the father fumbled incompetently with nuts and bolts and saws in full view of his children, leaving spaces between his competences for his children to grow. That was what the father did. He taught the world, he taught the child how the world was put together and how to negotiate the world. And that's missing. It's all now about changing nappies and making sandwiches. You know, I, I can make a sandwich with my eyes closed, with my toes. You know what I mean? It's nonsense. And, and Would you recognise, though, that that arose, that culture of suspecting the father arose, particularly in this country, where there were so many women that were abandoned? And locked up and, well, you know, uh, destroyed come on, by... Well, come on, Sarah, I, I don't accept that that's down to fathers. I mean, in any situation, I did an interview recently for a, a Canadian uh, uh, film company who were making a documentary about this very issue, uh, the way that what happened to those women and children. But I said, you know, 
In what sense would it be suggested, or could it be suggested, that the fathers had more right to intervene in the process that was taking place, to take the child, to whisk the child away, spirit the child away, than the mother had? Mm-hmm. I mean, the father had absolutely no rights. He had no voice. He was a subject. He was probably a young man, in maybe 19, 20, 21. What capacity had he to intervene and stop this procedure taking place? It's complete nonsense. It's prejudice, which has been generated by years and years of, of, of uh, propaganda. And, you know, these are young men and the child is deprived um, by the loss of its father as it is by the loss of its mother. And this is something we can't accept. It's an amazing thing, Sarah. You know, we have come a long way in terms of our, 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 uh, the way we speak about people, different categories of people and so on. But there's one category you can say or what you like about now, and that's fathers. I mean, as soon as you start to talk about fathers and their rights to their children, the first thing people say, oh, what about rapists? If you use that logic in relation to black people or uh, gay people, in other words, invoke a prejudice, uh, the most extreme situation conceivable, you will be put in jail. That's what would happen to you. Mm. And rightly so. But you can say what you like about fathers. I am really sick of it. I'm sick of the posturing of politicians. I'm sick of the posturing of journalists. I'm sick of journalists the way they go on. I mean, I've talked about this for 20 years and and I wrote about it uh, in the Irish Times. I know who, who was there and who wasn't there. I know who supported the cause and who didn't support it. I know the people who opposed me. Uh, the people who opposed me, by and large, were the people to be found on the front line of the uh, gay marriage uh, referendum, arguing for a change in the constitution, almost to a man. And, and are woman. they there now on repeal the eighth? They are the same people, the same people talking about human rights. And I know who they are, and I mean, if I had time, I would name them. But uh, you know, I will name them in due course. But. Journalists now, it's interesting. Matt O'Connor comes here and he, he, I, I love Matt and, and, and he's a wonderful guy. And he asked me to take part in the stunt with him and I, I thought about it for 24 hours and I said, Matt, you know, if I do it with you, it'll be all about me. It'll be John Waters making an ass of himself. It won't be about Father for Justice. It, it'll be another opportunity for all these so-called journalists to have a go at John Waters. So I decided to sit it out. Now, the point is, you know, the... the, the, the uh, uh, rights of fathers are natural. They are inalienable, imprescriptible, as it says in the Constitution. They cannot be given up and they cannot be taken away. I don't want them to give us rights. I want them to stop getting in the way of the rights we have as of right and as of nature. And that's John Waters talking to me last week and the full interview is on Newstalk.com and his essay is in The Village magazine this month. A couple of your texts. As a father of two who has fought like crazy to keep my children and is now a stay-at-home father, believe me, it's a disgrace. There's no respect from the courts, no respect from the state. Uh, Men need to be more respected. Some of us are fantastic fathers and our children are our lives. Hi, Sarah. Great show. I'm a family law solicitor and I find parents in conflict also need support by way of co-parenting courses to help them learn to cooperate in the interests of their children rather than squabble. OMG, John Waters' polemic yet again takes away from his point. That's Anna. Robin Wicklow says, uh, link father's rights to the male mental health problems. Men are still expected to cope and just get on with things. Don't whine or talk about any difficulties they have. It's not good enough to get men to talk. They need to be listened to too. And uh, Candy says on Twitter, on the presumption of shared parenting, how do you prove a child's welfare is at risk unless something bad happens? So look, we'll take a break and when we come back, we'll be hearing from Lee Mogogon and Fergus Finlay. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.
Good morning and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about fathers' rights this morning and in studio with me, Fergus Finley, Chief Executive with Bernardo's and Limo Gogon is founder of Parental Equality. And so far this morning, we've heard from Matt O'Connor, Roshan O'Shea and John Waters. Um, Fergus, I mean, it seems to me that it is inarguable that fathers married and unmarried are coming off badly and they do need some political attention, but they're not getting it. Why do you think they're not getting it? That's not the way I would approach the issue, to be okay. perfectly honest. All I, mean, right. I, I approach this issue, uh, and I suppose I, if I'm going to declare an interest, I, the first interest I should declare is that I've been a father for 40 years. Um, the second interest I should declare is that I work for an organisation that believes passionately uh, and advocates passionately for the rights of children. Um, I, I mean, I have to say, I don't want to get dragged into... Uh, John Waters um, uh, arguments, but I have to say I find it really hard to listen to somebody arguing for rights who has campaigned for years against, for example, the rights of children. He took a leading role in opposing the rights of children in the Constitution and and in the process made some of the most outrageous claims it, it's possible to make. But I don't want to go there. I think, I think if you begin by looking at this issue uh, about what children need and what the rights of children ought to be. They are expressed in some degree in our constitution now. Um, I mean, the point has been made several times here that fathers don't have any rights in the constitution, that all the rights are vested in mothers. In fact, mothers don't have any rights in the constitution. Parents don't have any rights in the constitution. The only people who have rights in our constitution are married parents. And those married parents, when John Waters talks about inalienable and imprescriptible, those rights are assigned to married parents. And that's a fundamental flaw in our constitution, always has been. And that's um, why the unmarrieds need a referendum. And, well, it's why we need to level the playing field um, uh, right across the board. But what we did decide uh, in the referendum that John Waters fought against was to ensure that children caught up in these situations would have two rights. They would have the right, first of all, to have their interests regarded as paramount. And secondly, they would have the right to be heard. Um, now, when we're talking about the competing, conflicting rights of mothers and fathers, we're talking about conflict. You know, we're talking about those rights in competition <coughs> in situations of conflict. I can give you dozens of examples of men who have been hurt by those conflicts. I've, I've been involved in them. I've known them. I've talked to those men. I've tried to sometimes offered support to those men. And I can give you dozens of rights of situations of women who have been hurt in those conflicts. But above all, I could give you thousands of examples of children who have been hurt in those conflicts. They've been hurt by being um, used as pawns in the battle between men and women. They've been hurt by being deprived of the love of one parent or the sufficient access to one parent over another uh, and so on. So there is a huge need to level out the playing field um, in the interests of everybody. And I can't sign up. I wish I could, but I can sign up to say, let's level out the rights of men as against women. Let's level out the rights of women as against men. It, but we, that's we, not really the question, though, is it? Well, I, I think if you're talking about a level playing field, then let's consider all the people on the pitch. Let's consider the children. Let's consider the fathers. Let's consider the mothers. And let's see how we can make oh, the situation more equal. OK, well, let me one put one the, question to you. Sure. Would you support a referendum for unmarried um, parents to have the same rights as married parents? Speaking entirely personally, 
I would, provided it was properly framed. Right, and provided that it was couched around the needs of children mm-hmm. uh, and framed around the needs of children. Um, because that's, to my mind, where the heart of the matter is. I mean, w- one of the things that has increased um, the anger and the passion around this subject has been the secrecy with which all of this stuff goes on. And w- if there is one reform, one area in which I would really strongly agree with John Waters and have offered to agree with him publicly in the past, um, is about this issue of secrecy. We simply don't know enough about what's going on in the courts. We rely all the time on anecdotal evidence. Um, I mean, I, I well, Roisin knows, and Roisin has made it very clear that um, Roisin knows based on interviews. She doesn't know based on sitting in the family court and watching proceedings, because the only person in Ireland who has been allowed, or the only entity in Ireland <coughs> that has been allowed to do that has been the Child Law uh, Family Reporting uh, uh, Organisation headed up by Carol Coulter. Um, and, and they have assembled a lot of evidence of empirical data based on their ability to sit in on the family courts. But the family courts, all their proceedings are in camera. They're all in secret. And uh, if you've been in the family court, you've been there as a supplicant, an applicant, a litigant. You've been there as a person in conflict. Uh, and um, and and that's your experience. Everybody who goes into the family courts goes in in a situation of every mother, father, and child goes in in the heart of a conflict. Um, and that there's something fundamentally wrong about the fact that we can't know. In my own view, there's something fundamentally wrong about the fact that that these conflicts are fought out in adversarial situations. I remember talking to a senior counsel a number of years ago about how you could get the conflict out of some aspects of Mm. family law. And he said, he looked at me as if I was half mad and he said, why are you asking me that question? If you send me in to a family court, you send me in for two primary purposes. My first purpose is to win. My second purpose is to get my costs and minimise your costs. Um, I have no interest in any other outcome than that. If a child loses, if a mother loses, if a father loses and I win, that's the nature of the system. So that's the it's up to the politicians then to change that system. And they didn't change the system when they we had the chance. We have been promised reform of the family courts for years, for generations. And and the fundamental reform needs to be one that moves away from this adversarial approach. OK, I have to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll be with Limo Gogan, founder of Parental Equality. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Good morning and welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about fathers' rights this morning and in studio, Fergus <coughs> Finney, Chief Executive of Bernardo's and Lima Gogan, founder of Parental Equality. Um, Lima, I suppose what's interesting me most about this is not the case as to whether or not fathers should get more rights or need a referendum or need legislation, but the fact that they just aren't making any traction um, in the public discourse about their case. And I think it's probably due to two reasons. One is, you know, there's a long and horrible history for women in coming off badly after they got pregnant by men and they were locked up and their babies taken and, you know, really, really suffered um, in Irish society. And the other one is, and this is the one that comes up most frequently when I mentioned it to other people, is that the father's rights campaigners look a bit mad and unstable in some way. And you just kind of can't be taken seriously. Now, I just I just think when you say that of George Bernard Shaw saying the 
reasonable man adapts to the world, the unreasonable world expects the man to adapt to him. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So being mad is a great sign. It's being able to stay mad. That's the real that's the real challenge in this in this world. Uh, no, look, at I, I've, it's been an interesting hour when your researcher contacted me yesterday. I said my willingness to engage in this dialogue was really from a reflective perspective. You introduced me as having founded Parental Equality. And just for the listeners, I, I would just ask any listener there to just, just stop for a moment and ask yourself what those two words mean to you, parental equality. And if you have an issue with those two words then really the dialogue can't go any further than that. that. That's my own sense. But also just to remember, I mean, I'm 60 years of age now, and I mean what I call that post-father phase. That's an interesting way of putting it. But the struggles and the dialogues, I separated in twice, firstly in 1988 with one child, and then got back together and in the madness, uh, we had another child and separated again in 1990. And every single person I met who I went to advice for told me just to get used to the fact that I would get to see my children an odd time, essentially. I, I sat with Dermot O'Hearn, who had a, a long political career, who I grew up playing water polo with. And Dermot sat in his office and said to me that invariably in the Western world, women get their children. So there, nothing was around rights or whether I was a good or a bad guy. We were in a, a social prescription that I was expected to accept. And I look back and, and thanks to the presence of both my late mother and late father in my life and the deep, meaningful relationship that I now much and much later life appreciate I had with them. I believe it was my ignorance rather than belligerence which carried me through the, the look at the the insane process of law where I simply didn't listen to those people. In my soul, I understood that I was a father and the journey I had to do essentially to conscientize idiots. I mean, I'm talking about as an engineer, I'm speaking as an engineer here and I have to say, I met people with philosophically corrupt perspectives uh, and very little technical ability. That's what I, uh, that's, that's the engineer in me speaking. But I had to conscientize those people to get them to recognize what was obvious for me, which was that you know, I, I sat in the delivery room with my youngest and my eldest child and the, the, the only person was there myself and a gynecologist and the nurse had left. And it was a forceps delivery and he asked me to hold her legs apart while he pulled the child. Now, I'm not a farmer, but for the first time in my life, I got to see what it's like. And it was the most majestic experience I ever had. And afterwards, he showed me the placenta, he showed me washing it and everything. And I took photographs of everything. And that's interesting because subsequently the mother would have thought that that was a really horrible thing for me to do. But the engineer in me, I was looking at something which no man could create like a machine. Well, maybe with the latest robots we're getting there. You know, that's what guys are getting off and now. But I was able to create this child, this magical item, and I realised that a set of tools came with that child and it didn't come from any form of state or anything on this planet. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if there's a God or so, no God. So why is motherhood venerated 
in language like that. Well, I, I, but, but well, I said to you beforehand, not. I often wonder within the Catholic tradition of Joseph. I mean, Joseph, what, what was Joseph? We have the Virgin Mary, she was a mother. And all this. So this guy, Joseph, I always pictures in my mind about Joseph was an old man. He wasn't a young, you know, he wasn't a young ride. He was an old man with no testosterone. He was a benign person who looked after a woman. But nobody cared about who Joseph was. So, like, right from the very start, Jesus' father had no role. <clears throat> he was either, we've replaced Jesus' father, God, now with the state. The state, the substitute father for everything is, is in existence. But just to say to you, the thing that's important and important about this media program, when I was granted joint custody, joint physical custody of my children in October 1991, for the first time in Irish legal history, the judge specifically in a reserve judgment said that he was affected by the um, a program which he'd seen the previous night by on BBC, The Heart of the Matter, by Joan Bakewell. And that gave him an insight into joint custody he knew nothing about. And I was so aware at the time that my journey in life would have to be to try to create public dialogue around something which was under the radar. So essentially, I believe our difficulty as men, their expression is under the radar. Um, just very quickly, Fergus. Oh, by the way, just on Roisin O'Shea, she rang back in just to point out she did observe over a thousand family law cases in the Eighth Circuit Courts. Sorry about How, that. Uh, that's OK. How will fathers get over the radar? I think if we could all join forces around what children need um, and if we could make the debate a little bit less about what mothers need and about what fathers need and the hurt and pain and the conflict, if we could uh, find ways to address the conflict issues uh, in that are less adversarial, but if we could concentrate on the love, the respect, the nurturing that children need, um, we might all find common cause. Okay. And now we're just going back to Roisin O'Shea from Arc Mediation. Uh, Roisin Fergus had been saying there earlier that there was a problem about knowing exactly what is going on in the courts. Is research anecdotal or is it empirical? So what exactly was the nature of your research? Well, I suppose, I suppose I'm really startled somebody like Fergus Finley and, and his standing. Bernardo's is an amazing organisation that works with kids. And for someone like Fergus not to know about my research and that it's empirical is extraordinary. <laughs> That's not the view. But basically, my research was funded by the Irish Research Council. I watched 1,200 family law cases in the circuit court in eight circuits across, across the country over a four-year period. I constructed a large database, which I put all the data into. So this was pure empirical research. And the reason I did my research and it was funded by the, the, the um, Irish Research Council. The reason I did it was actually to get hard facts and data about what's happening in our family courts. And I think what's happening with my research is that the, this data is not very palatable because it is showing that the outcomes for men in particular are really poor. Uh, fathers. You know, so, there, so that's the problem. And so th- this is the first huge empirical research study done in Ireland into the family courts. Um, so I'm I'm disappointed that that Fergus Finley is not aware of it and and obviously hasn't read it and I'm going to I'm going to address that I'm going to make sure it gets to him so he can read it, but I think we don't have to have a conversation about our outcomes for fathers bad in court. We know we now know it's proven. So it's not about is this happening? We exactly. know it's happening, and the question is why is it happening and what can we do to fix it? Yeah, and I think. I think what happens is, and I look, I saw the same thing during the course of my search. I was in New Zealand. I had a very interesting conversation with a judge in New Zealand who was 27 years on the bench. And I put his interview into, into my research. But he said to me that he and other judges greatly resented fathers' rights groups in New Zealand who were 
posting aggressive statements online about them and challenging them in public forums, not necessarily Rosa Trulli style, but that kind of thing. And they resented the, the messengers rather than the message. Mm. And there, the, therein lies the problem. It was the aggressive attacks of the fathers that the judges resented most. Therefore, their message couldn't be true. Yeah. So, so it all got lost in the mix. But eventually, the weight of numbers, the weight of protests, led to significant changes in New Zealand, one of which was opening up the family court so, so people could see and know what was going on. Well, we've done that in Ireland. My research is, was the start of it. Now we as a country, we've opened them up. So we know. Let's not continue to have a conversation about, is this happening? It is. And is that part of the problem, actually? Just, you know, that New Zealand case and the judges resenting the father's um, aggression, you know, that... By the time we get to hear from their fathers, they're absolutely desperate. So maybe they're not the best people to be advocating for themselves. They almost need other people, people like you, a woman to advocate for them. Because That's, that's exactly, that's bang on, Sarah. That's exactly it. And, and you know what? We all have brothers, fathers, uncles, uh, cousins that are male. We, we know we, it, it isn't about women versus men. And I think when people, particularly men who get into who realise the the intractability of our courts and the injustice of the situation and the lack of ability to even to get some sort of fairness or equality or, or parity treatment, that does lead to significant anger. Would you not feel angry in the same situation? And that anger, like lots of the, a lot of the judges that I interviewed said that they, they, they took against somebody who came into their courtroom who presented as agitated or angry. Mm. That's a natural human response. If you have somebody in front of you who's looking at you with tigers and is, 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 is feeling very agitated, it is a natural human response to, to, to just go, well, well, I don't like the look of this guy. or you know. But in fact, what we should be doing is understanding why this person is feeling like this and why they're presenting like this. And it's because of the injustice of the situation. OK, Roisin, we leave it there for this morning then. Many thanks for coming back on. Thanks to my other guests. Marion Kennedy was in Sandy for being produced. Bobby Kerr is up next. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.